thought I was having some kind of nervous breakdown. Um, and it was a really, really tough, you know, 18 months, two years to pivot the business, do what needed to be done, try to be in the places that I needed to be in and try to, my words, save everybody. And I couldn't save everybody. Who are you trying to save? I was trying to save my mum. I was trying to save the business and I was trying to save me. Welcome to Beyond the Fail, the podcast where we talk to leaders and entrepreneurs about their biggest business failures. We'll deep dive into how they overcame these setbacks, the lessons they learned from them, all to help you gain valuable insights. Failure is an essential part of the business journey, as well as being the key to success. So we're here to show you how to thrive from it. Today on Beyond the Fail, we have Joe Stimson as a guest, who is a highly experienced entrepreneur who has built, scaled and sold a bricks and mortar business. She led this underfloor heating business as the managing director and co-owner for 19 years, leading it through the 2008 recession and scaled it from nine employees to 20 people at its height. Sales and customer service are her specialities and she has won multiple awards and was nominated in 2022 for Businesswoman of the Year. She is now using her skills learned over that multifaceted career, along with her coaching and business strategy qualifications, to help business owners turn their sales teams into cash machines. In today's episode, Jo talks openly about the struggles of managing her business through the 2008 recession, whilst dealing with her mum's recent diagnosis for motor neuron disease and her own health issues at the same time. Plus, she discusses for the first time how her childhood dream of opening a floristry business became a reality after she sold her own company, but this soon turned into an ordeal and a black hole of cash and had to be closed down after less than a year. This is Beyond the Fail with Joe Stimson. Joe, thank you for being here today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you. How are you? I am good. I'm looking forward to um, getting to know you and to our conversation um, today. So, yeah, thank you again for for being here. So, Joe, tell me uh, about about yourself. Where did it kind of you know all start for you with your career? Um, so initially, it was my mum and dad had a sweet shop. We moved from East London to Kent when I was thirteen. So. My first experience of work was working in the sweet shop. <laughs> um, how was that? How was how was that experience? How young did they get you working? Well, we moved when I was thirteen, so um, so helping in the shop and stacking the shelves and all of that kind of things, through to when I could drive, driving my brother around on his paper round if it rained, <laughs> or if other paper boys and girls didn't turn up, then. I'd be roped in to be the one to go out and, and do it before oh, before so. work. Yeah. And why? And what? Just out of curiosity, what, why was it actually just one of those vintage sweet shops, or was it like a, a kind of newsagent? Um, when we first went there, it was there was a supermarket in the village, but it sold wool and it sold um, oh, all sorts of things, sewing bits and. 
bread bakery stuff but over time my mum and dad just made it into newsagent sweet shop mm. uh, magazines that kind okay. of thing um and built up the reputation you know the way um it's every kid's dream to live in a sweet shop so <laughs> <laughs> you're a happy child then uh, and yeah. probably one full of energy with all the with all the sugar with all the sugar yeah sure <laughs> mm. So what kind of, because um, obviously, you know, you're surrounded, I suppose, by that kind of business environment at an early age. What impact did that have on you? Um, I always, from that experience, I then always wanted a florist shop. I loved the romanticized idea of really what we had in the sweet shop in being surrounded by flowers. Um and that, that kind of stayed with me from that young age. You know, my mum and dad had always worked when we were kids. My dad worked in the stock exchange and then he had a job in the evening. And, you know, they just got to the point where they just wanted to work together. And that's where the, you know, taking us from East London to the middle of nowhere in Kent kind of came from. So it was like a village shop, basically. Yeah, yeah, a small yeah. little village shop, yeah. How did they get on? Was it a successful business? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they loved it. Yeah. Yeah, they loved it. They just got to the point, I think it was about 20... They had it for about 10, 11 years. Mm. Yeah. And then they and then they sold it, and it was actually... Then it was turned back into a house. So it's, it's not oh, a switch right. shop anymore. Mm. So where did, uh, where did your kind of career take you from from that, you know... Those school. Yeah. So when I left school, um, I'd always wanted to, after kind of parking the floristry thing, then I wanted to be a makeup artist. And um, my mum and dad couldn't afford to send me to the, the college that I went to. So I got onto a hotel management course that I didn't start because I only wanted to do the management. And it was two or three years um, catering and then the management bit was tagged on the end so it ended up um, I'd done the young enterprise scheme at school showing my age here for those of you old enough um, and one of the mentors was the local bank manager so when I was leaving school as the eldest it was you don't leave school without a job um, very east end kind of way of looking at it um, so I left school on the Thursday and I started work on the following Tuesday in the local Midland Bank where I stayed for nine years. Yeah. And what did that experience give you? At the time, you don't realise what it's giving you. Um, it kind of comes with hindsight. I mean, it was great. It was the mid-80s we were of a very similar age working together. We were all single and we had, a, we had an amazing time and things that you definitely wouldn't get away with now, you know, in a, in a banking environment. It was that when, what? well, we used to lock people in the safe. We used to sit in the cash point and say to people, thank you. And how would you like your money? And, you know, frighten the life out of people and just, you know, stuff like that. We'd go to the pub at lunchtime and, have a couple of glasses of wine and then we come back and sit on the till and just, you know, be be really jolly with people because everybody was kind of half cut. <laughs> I hope you're able to count the money still. 
Yeah. Oh, uh, your chiller always balanced on the day you had a drink. It was amazingly how that happened. Um, but what it did teach me, it taught me people skills. Um, I mean, I got up to assistant branch manager. I'd moved around different branches and I'd been the student um, lending person and I'd ran the school bank and all of the things that the bank had in um kind of in place and then done lending and that kind of thing. I, I was manager's secretary for 18 months with no typing experience at all. So that was a very interesting um, time, a time when it wasn't a laptop. It was typewriter, carbon paper, tipex. <laughs> so it was it was a challenge to, to begin with. Um, but it taught t- what the... Bank of old taught you is really good customer service, really good people skills. And ironically, for the job I'm doing now and the job I've done for many years, I left because I didn't want to be a salesperson. And they were pushing me to, we used to stay late and ring people. Would they want to talk about their pensions? The money that they've put into the bank, how would they like to invest it? And I just really didn't like it. Um, but they obviously saw something that I didn't see at the time. And um, so that was my reason for leaving after nine years. You said your dad worked on the stock exchange. Was that? Do you think that was a sort of subconscious influence for you to go into banking yourself or finance? No, I just think it was the first option. If, if it had been someone, you know, because I did my work experience in a beauty salon and in a hairdresser's, so I think it, if the mentor that had come to mind had been one of those people, but because Mr. Hunt, as his name was, was, you know, he was just an amazing person that kind of took me under his wing and really helped in that young enterprise scheme, that it just seemed really obvious to see if there was an opportunity to work with him. No, and start my career there. And I think most people of my age that went into banking definitely went in with, well, I'll do this for a bit until I like get a proper job. Um, but then it was also classed as a job for life. Did you stay in banking after that then? No, I left um, nine years later. Yeah, yeah. And I went and worked for my dad. No, at that point, because he was, um, through the time as growing up, he'd been a main collector for Littlewoods Football Pools. So in the in the 70s when the pools was a thing and everybody did it. Um, and he got the chance to take on the London and South region as a concessionaire and he needed someone to run the office. So I left and did that with him um, and I joined the the week that the lottery launched (laughs) and the lottery just decimated the The lottery was the main rival essentially to the yeah yeah it was yeah it was so it was all shiny and new and it just you know really over the course of that time really really killed it off but again that job took me back into sales um, we launched scratch cards into the post office uh, network and 
we had to get people, the post offices to agree to take take it and help them sell it and point a sale and all that kind of stuff. And that's where the sales kind of side really kind of kicked in there. Yeah. And with the, the Littlewoods thing, mm. why is, why do you think that that kind of business ended up, um, you know, I suppose closing in the end? Was it, did it not innovate enough? The thing, again, my opinion, um, is it didn't innovate quick enough because it was still paper and the lottery made it really easy um, and changed quite quickly with technology. Whereas it was very late in the day. Most people that play the pools have played static numbers like they do the lottery. So they eventually bought out a card that the collector could just scan and take and take the money. But it still was at that point still a very manual process. So there was a collector, the main collector, and then the concessionaire, and they're dealing with a lot of cash. You know, and they're out, all weathers, has to go be out every Wednesday night collecting the things from the same people. And people got really bent out of shape if they missed their person because they had no other way to put their coupon on at that point. They could have taken it to a shop, but if they couldn't get to the shop, then then there was no way that they, they could have played that week. So that's what your dad did. He went and basically took the the bets from from people. In the beginning, at the at the end, he was in charge of the whole thing. So they would they would bring everything in, um, and because it was so valuable, they would be collected on a Friday night, and they would take them back on a coach, and there would be ex Scotland Yard police officers around each of the concessions to ensure that nothing got stolen. Yeah, because I mean, roughly, how much money was. Was each person collecting every week? We got hundreds of pounds, hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Which obviously, yeah. Some chips, well, most clash. Yeah, yeah. Because people paid every week, so yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a big business. Oh, you could start at like ten pence. Oh, right. No, back in the back in the day. Yeah, you know, you could do. Um, anything like that, but it it was, yeah, it was it was just what everybody did. Everybody remembers their granddad or their dad, you know, doing the pools, and it was in, as part of our culture in the seventies and eighties. It was massive. Now it's still going now, but it's really really small, and it's and it's online. So what ended up happening to your dad's your dad's kind of team and the the office that um. You really, um, how did that sort of play out over those years? Well, he unfortunately had a series of strokes at 57, which led to him leading to give it up. So, yeah, he had to make me redundant, which obviously wasn't a great conversation for him. I completely understood why. Um, and it got handed over to 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 somebody else. It was just a, a matter of, you know, we just needed to to take take him out of that equation and there was no way that he would have been able to have gone back to have done it. So did you get made redundant because he was leaving? Because ultimately it's all self-employed. So I, I, I basically, 
I we did it that way so that I would get some obviously redundancy pay, but I obviously would have been going with him anyway. So yeah, after getting another seven, eight years of my career, it was okay. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Again, I've learned a lot. Um, taught me a lot of adaptability, flexibility, thinking on your feet, problem solving, that kind of thing. Because, you know, running a team of 90 people out on the roads that you never meet, you need to ensure that you've got all the contingencies in place if 10 of those people can't get out. No. I'm just thinking back to that conversation between you and your dad. Obviously, was that after his stroke as well? That he had that yeah. conversation, that redundancy? Yeah. So obviously you had yeah. this big sort of health crisis, which I'm sure was extremely sort of stressful and shocking at the time. Mm. And then he had to have a redundancy conversation with his daughter. Yeah. How How, how did that feel? It came natural in a way because it was obvious that it was going to not, you know, the fact that he wasn't going to be able to go back meant that I didn't want to go back because towards the end, as people that work in their family business, that they do, you do kind of get held by the responsibility of the position that you've got rather than it being working for somebody else and you can easily leave. So... In a in a very positive way, it came to the right end, but it was just a shame, shame the circumstances that led it to happen. Yeah. And did he let you down gently, or <laughs> like how? Yeah. You know, what, did, yeah. what did he kind of say? <laughs> well, we just sat there and was like, "What? What we got? What's happening like next?" You know, and being a proud man. He's like, I'll I'll be fine. I'll I'll get back. And we as a family were like, we don't think that's the right thing. You know, we just don't think this is. It it it's been a really good run, and you're too valuable in the situation to put you back. You know, mm-hmm. in there because we have that strong work ethic. You know, within the the family kind of culture. So he would have just gone straight back and, you know, started working at the pace that he was. And, um, yeah, and at 57, which is scarily close to my age now, and I can't even imagine what that must have felt like. It was like, okay, we need to, you know, we need to just make sure that you're okay and I'll be okay because I can go and find yeah. Work and did he did he retire? Let him down gently. Yeah, he did retire. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's early. Do you think that that uh, sort of stroke was maybe brought on by the the stresses of running that team and and running a a business which was potentially on the downward spiral given the competition from the lottery? I think so. Yeah, I think he he I think he took on the responsibility for all of the people because they'd been with him a long time, you know, and, and they stayed because it was him, you know, as is really common, you know, and he, he, I think he just, he just took it all on himself and he certainly didn't 
speak to us openly about it. Obviously, we knew what was going on because we were we were in there. But I think the lesson learned out the other side is he's he's a lot more open now. I think you know the lesson learned for him is don't bottle it up, and you don't have to do it on your own. But again, very common in 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 men as as is in the news and you know men's mental health is a massive topic oh definitely i I think it's still very much an issue of men do have a tendency of bottling things up absolutely but Mm -hmm. also i'd say that that's also a generational thing as well that is probably even worse in uh the older generations particularly i would say and i'm potentially speculating but you know that east end culture as well as you mentioned what influence do you think that had on maybe his tendency to bowl things up you know i would say it's very much his personality trait you know he was one of seven um second youngest always in trouble um yeah i think yeah that's complete parallel yeah i would say it had a big factor what what you said complete power what what's in parallel well just he the upbringing and the culture you know that as you're saying is passed down by by generations you know his his father wasn't a very open man you know he was to us as a family um but family and work kind of two different things and I think, you know, pride, ego, generational, gender is all in the mix there. So what's, um, I suppose, just sort of fast forwarding then, what, what's been the proudest moment of your kind of business career, professional career? Oh, definitely. Um, so when I left dad's business, I, I got a job with Next and I was thinking about going back into finance and I ended up after a couple of temporary temporary jobs in a in a business startup that I joined in 2006. It was an electric underfloor heating business and I stayed there for 19 years. I left August last year. Um, and from a really niche product um my proudest thing is that we built a brand name within the electrical industry. Something that, yeah, I'm I'm immensely proud of the people, immensely proud of my uh, tenacity and flexibility and all the things I learned from, you know, really that 13-year-old led me to be able to take the business through, you know, recessions and pandemics and all kinds of things so yeah that 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 will always be my proudest you know what was your role how did you how did your role change over time so i went in as office manager and three years later i took over as md um and i was the md sales director 2017 i took the company through a management buyout and then had ownership along with two other um, colleagues 
and then I exited the business after the five year um, uh, now. Amazing. That's some promotion from office managers to MD. Yeah. Yeah. How did that kind of level of promotion come about and what size was the company across those three years that you got that promotion? Oh, it was, no, we were, we were only ever maximum 20 people. So, um, but when I was there, probably about, I went in there about nine people. It was a big sales team. And then it was really building the office and the background and all the customer service because of what the bank taught me. That was kind of, and because I'd run this remote sales team in the pools, they were like, you can help support us with the sales team as well. So over the course of that year, it was, we put the systems in place hired the, the admin team that we needed and then I moved into looking after the sales team and then within that three years started to go out and see customers because I was just interested it's a really crowded market and, and there really shouldn't have been a place for us so I wanted to ask people what why are you why are you using us you know and they were like oh we like this and we like that and we like the other and over time I kind of just re looked at the strategy with the current MD and he was like, you've just got a skill set that I haven't got. You know, I can, I, I, I'm, I'm the, the entrepreneur. I'm the starting person. I now need someone to take it forward. So me and another colleague who looked after the finance and technical side, we became both joint directors with me taking the MD title uh, and, we, and we took the business forward for him until 2017 when he decided he, he wanted out. Sorry, lots of questions going through my head. Mm, no, it says a lot there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, so, well, what did that period look like in terms of a sort of success? How did you grow that company and what kind of successes did you see uh, uh, kind of along the way? Well, up until 2000s, up until I took over as MD to 2006, 2007, we were very focused retail-wise because that's where the product was sold in tile shops and bathroom shops and things like that. We could see the recession coming. We could see the start of it hitting small independent businesses. And so we decided as a collective to pivot the company into the electrical industry. Um, because the regulations were changing in our favour, the electrical rigs, um, and we knew that we gave the best service and had a high-quality product. So if we could bolt on approvals to the product that would work in favour with the regulations, then we had something unique for the market and we became the brand name in that marketplace. It was a case of, okay, how does it work? There's buying groups, there's national wholesalers, there's independent wholesalers. And within a year, um, I'd got us preferred supplier to everybody that needed what we did. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to, to picking up the phone, old, old fashioned, not being frightened to just ring and say, can I have a conversation with you about this? This is why. You should use it. Can we meet face to face? 
um, can I come and show you, you know, what what it can make difference to your business or your members if they were a buying group? Um, and people said yes, because none of our competitors had, had gone out and, and had the conversation. They were dealing with little pockets and individual, but it made sense to me to be, well, if I can get it all wrapped up in one, we're going to have to make those visits anyway. But if we can walk in there as the preferred supplier, then we're more likely to get the airtime. And that's exactly what happened. That's and once we've done it once, mm. once we've done it once, once we've done it twice, then we were like, okay, there's six of them all together. Um, let's just go for all six. And, and that's exactly what we did. But at that time, 2008, was um recession hitting my mum was diagnosed with motor neuron disease um i was turning 40 um and what i didn't know and now know was perimenopausal i thought i was having some kind of nervous breakdown um and it was a really really tough no, 18 months, two years to pivot the business, do what needed to be done, try to be in the places that I needed to be in and try to, my words, save everybody. And I couldn't save everybody. Who are you trying to save? I was trying to save my mum. I was trying to save the business and I was trying to save me. And I, and I, became, I became the casualty of that because... I couldn't lose my mum and what was my work career and my work family all at the same time. How did you go about trying to save, you know, save those people considering some of those things are possibly outside your control? With hindsight, not very well. Not very well at all. I didn't serve anybody well in that. I did the best that I could with the tools that I had, no, um, I was living on, living on my own, working on my own because out on the road, spending time at mum and dad's because we cared for her at home, um, and tried to do my job at the same time. And it was by the luck of whoever you believe in or whatever you believe in that I didn't follow my dad into a series of strokes because it's in my family line. My granddad had it. My great-granddad had it. My dad had it. And it just by, I think, sheer luck because I certainly wasn't looking after myself in that time either um, that I came out the other side. My mum was diagnosed in the January. She died in the October. So we we finished the year in a very different place in all aspects and there was no safe place in my world for 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 definitely that 12 months i mean obviously that sounds a hell of a year and a hell of an 18 months mm -hmm. but also something that struck me that you said you said that you were out on the road a lot you're living on your own sounds quite mm -hmm. lonely mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah definitely and that's why the the business held 
a different value to just it being a job because that was my work family. That was a place I could go to. No. But I also had had to be the person that was leading the company and make sure in their eyes that everything felt like it was okay because people go to, well, what, what about me? That's happening to her. If she's, if, if she's doing that and the company's not going to do very well, well, what about me? And I just needed to keep everybody on. This is not, you know, I'm still here. I'm still doing everything to make sure that you can pay your mortgage and you can do the thing is actually the pattern that that was in. Interesting. Was everyone aware of your mum's situation? Yeah. Yeah, I was very open about it. Did you ever let on that you were maybe struggling a little bit with, you know, with your health and uh, and also with, with your mum's condition? No. So you followed your dad? Not internally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Once you lay it out, and start talking about it, you take you take responsibility. And that's exactly what I did. You know, with hindsight, if I had the time again, I would I would play it a very different hand. But you're right though, because as a sort of MD and as a leader of that business, they're expecting you to be the strong one. Essentially it's a it's a bit like you could compare it, I mean you said the word family you could compare it to a family and you're looking for the, you know, the parent to be the strong one because someone needs to be the, the kind of rock that takes people through, you know, a, a crisis. Yeah. Is that how you felt? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I believed that I needed to be strong for them because all around us was doom and gloom, you know, and this, everything just aligned. We pivoted at the right time. We were welcomed with open arms into, you know, where we were going to go. We managed to replicate the, the business that we had in one in the other. So we didn't really have any kind of jar in everything fall off a cliff and rebuild it. Um, yeah, it, 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 worked you talked about um you just said you had one business in one and one business the other was it you did you move from b to c to b to b it's still b to b but the first one was retail to toll shops and bathroom shops and kitchen shops and people like that into electrical wholesalers builders merchant plumber trade basically yeah yeah, which was obviously a very smart and strategic move on, on your part. Was that the skill set that your outgoing MD mentioned? Because he said that you had a skill set that he didn't. Was that what it was? You were able to think strategically? I think because we did it as a collective, I'm not taking all the credit because there were three of us, you know, steering it at that point. I think what he saw in me at that time was that I would be tenacious and I would grab the task, you know, and run with it and be like, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is the parts everybody plays. 
And the differential that we had was we had a female MD that could sell in a male-dominated industry. So it was like, Joe, you need to go out. We need to we need to get you in front of as many people as we can, so that you can bring them bring them on board. And that's what I did until I left. I was customer facing. And that's a really interesting thing you just brought up, which I hadn't actually appreciated. But you saw that as an advantage rather than a disadvantage, because some people may see that as a you know as a disadvantage. Yeah. Because in a male dominated world, some people may say, "Well." You know, I'm sure that you had some attitudes of, well, why would I listen to this this female? In you know, I'm used to speaking with other blokes. Like, was th- was that ever the attitude that you came across, and did that cause any, uh, I suppose, conflict or you know, trouble? No. Um, in the beginning. It was a couple of times where people were just like, "But what, what are you going to tell? What are you going to tell me?" And I'm like, "Well, you don't know until I, you know, sit in the room." So, I guess my personality allows me to be cheeky and front, but not in like a ditzy way. So, because I'd had all the experience of working, I guess, it, with dad. And dealing with guys mainly there, it they they knew they were, weren't going to get away with anything, and they knew that I was there kind of on a mission. And it was very much I hundred percent believed in what we were doing, and I knew that if they used us, we would make a difference, and we we would help them make more money. Um, that it became a really easy sale once I got in front of people because they didn't see many females and I played it to my advantage so there was never any kind of pushback because you're a female mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. I think that's credit to you right and credit to you as you say your skill set and personality that you managed to I suppose knock down those those barriers mm-hmm. yeah I mean there was three or four of us at a high level females running manufacturers and suppliers into the marketplace so it wasn't just me but it's still like that today it's still very far few and far between and yeah you need to be a certain type of person you know they're not going to take you true you know I never did my job in a way that I was trying to be a man I never wore a suit and never went in with the attitude that I'm here to compete with you. It's, I'm here to talk about something I really believe that will help you. If you don't, if you don't want to give me the time, then that's, that's down to you. And you mentioned about the recession. How did that impact your business at the time? Um, we lost a third of our turnover. Um, relatively quickly we asked everybody to um, take unpaid time um, over the summer time because that wasn't a particularly busy time for us then it's kind of evened out now but they're still seasonal back in 2008 2009 
and the staff were very good. They took unpaid time when they could. Most of them had young families, so they were happy to take the extra time in the holidays. Um, my colleague and I went down to four days a week um, to take, again, the pressure off. Um, I went back to Next and worked there on a Sunday um, to balance out my money. Um, and and we got through. And in the November, we paid everybody back three quarters of the, the pay that they'd lost as a thank you because we could afford we could afford to do it and it was the right thing to do and everybody got back you know what what they sacrificed to help us get through and that was the same year that you were you had your health um issues and your and your mum uh, was also yeah diagnosed yeah. how did you get through that i mean that you know you've essentially said a third of your turnover which is a hell of a lot you haven't had these difficult conversations with uh, with your staff about taking essentially unpaid leave mm. and you've got all these other things going on in your life and there's big stresses. I was very lucky that my co-director, you know, was very supportive. Um, if it had just been me on my own, then potentially a different story. But I did at least have someone that, not necessarily I, that I spoke to about it, but I knew that they could take some of the weight off of the day-to-day -day running to allow me to not need to be there. And we just cut everything, just cut everything to the bone. Once we saw things sliding, all the kind of niceties went, so the cleaner went, the water cooler went, the, the niceties, and as a team, you know, we all sat in a room and went, okay, what is everybody prepared to do? And people were like, well, I can come in on a Saturday morning and I can clean this week and, you know, I can do this and I can make cakes and bring them in to save you buying biscuits and stuff like that. And because we were a tight-knit team, that that that's what got us through. It's an impressive yeah. response, actually. I don't think you'd get that yeah. from many teams. Yeah. No, they they were they were amazing because they knew that we would be doing everything we could to keep the no to keep to to keep it going. And people were fearing of their jobs, I presume. Yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. come close to having to let anyone go? No, no, we didn't. We, as directors, we put extra money in, and and we just cut it really really lean for that 11 months it was you know if we don't have to spend it or we can find it somewhere cheaper then that's what we did on the proviso with the suppliers that meant a lot to us on we will be back we all just need to get through this and once we're at the other side and things turn around then we will be back to you and we will continue the relationship so what happened then in order for you to be able to sort of come out the other side what changed at the end of that 11 months we had all the buying groups and the national half sailors on board and we and the turnover picked up yeah because the winter is the busiest time because it's cold and people think about heat 
so you didn't so at the beginning of of that 11 months that was when you were making that pivot was it yeah right yeah. got it yeah yeah because we could see at the back end of 2007 and the news and everything that was going on this if we stay in this one marketplace they're going to really struggle and we're going to really struggle. And, you know, we had contingency plans there that it would go back to the three of us. You know, the, the the company needed to survive. We had to save the company a bit. Kind of think about it like the crown, you know, when um, protect the crown. It was like protect protect the company. And if that has to resurrect from three of us or two of us, then... Then, then we've done our job because we've got to protect the the entity, protect yeah, our own name. That's an amazing foresight that you had to make that pivot because obviously that sounds like that that saved that business. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. So, how did you go from 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 that and you know exiting that company to going into floristry then? The 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 floristry. Um, chapter um so when i when i knew i was exiting i did my floristry qualification and i realized very quickly into my floristry qualification that i didn't want to be a florist because it's very manual work <laughs> and it's a lot of hard work and um that wasn't what i wanted to wanted to do so i thought okay how can i remain in the floristry industry. So what I'll do is I'll set up a business coaching um, business that will be a membership for florists to get better at business, better at sales, better at running their businesses, better than attracting customers rather than them just doing what they've always done. I did lots of research and worked with the lady at the flower school where I did the qualifications and everyone was like, this this is great. This is exactly what we need. Um, then I thought, okay, what I'll do is I'll build a flower bouquet website. I'll be the salesperson for, and that will feed orders into the membership. They will then get customers that they don't know, people that they could sell other stuff to and it will keep them busy and it'll be an extra revenue stream and the membership that they pay will be covered by the buying group that I do that I built as well to get discounts on all the things that they buy so if they used all the discounts and all the supplies that I'd put in place that would have covered their membership and then the sales of the thing was profit plus whatever I teach them so it was its own ecosystem of amazingness. Well, it sounds it sounds you know a good setup, definitely. You obviously again you you're with your strategic head on. You've you've thought you've touched all the bases. Yeah, and then I took it out to market. I did webinars every month. I could get people onto a webinar. I could generate leads like I was going out of fashion, but nobody wanted to pay the money. Um, how much was the membership? £150 a month. But that was for trainings. Not a huge amount of money then. No. no. I think that's no. very cheap, actually. <laughs> but I thought so too. It was four trainings a month. Um, 
and you know, access to me and I would be going out and doing all the deals and they could say, I want to deal with this particular chain or whatever and then I'd go out and do it. So I was piling money into the website because ultimately the rivals for the website were Interflora, Marks and Spencers, Waitrose. I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'll take it all. Piling money into this Flower UK website. How much money did you spend on that? 150000 on that seven-month project, yeah. Yeah, it was... It's my midlife crisis was building a flower bouquet website rather than a sports car or buying a house in the south of France. <laughs> but it taught me so much. People could not have convinced me to have not done it. No, it's, uh, I mean, that, that's a lot of money as well. So how much of that was into the website? What was your website budget? Um, so the website was about four grand a month. Yeah. But obviously you had to build it on the front end, so I presume that's yeah. quite a lot. Yeah, a lot of that was the build and the e-commerce side. Um, two photo shoots for all the flower bouquets. Um, I mean, it, it's beautiful. Um, but... It didn't. It didn't sell a penny. <laughs> it, it didn't. It, it never. It never got as far as anybody buying from it. So you never sold any from that website. No. What What happened? Why was that? Because I decided to pull it because it was. I. I. It was the the juxtaposition of I needed people to sign up because I needed them to make the bouquets because I couldn't get the people to sign up. It was very difficult to pinpoint where the website actually appeared. And then if people went onto the website and they only saw two postcodes, then what, then, then what's the point? And it was, okay, I've got to keep this going. And I've also got to try and get people on board. But I can generate 80 leads a week and now I don't want to speak to anybody because it's just, I want to put, you know, put pins in my eyes rather than pick up the phone and have the same conversation. Um, so I put it all on hold. So it went live July, August time, as in the build, and I shut it down in March. It was a very, very short-lived exercise. Yeah. So 80 leads a week. That's a lot of leads. That's yeah. more for your coaching clients. That was for the florists. So that was the florists, you know, off of one video, one webinar through Score App. Um, and I could, I could get 30, 40 people onto the webinar. People loved the idea of it, but they, they just couldn't, wouldn't, whatever, pay, pay the money. They just didn't see, yeah, they just didn't see what, what I saw. Why do you think that was? What, was? what was the feedback you were getting? What was the objections you were getting from those people that you know were refusing to pay? They, that they were struggling on their own. That they, you know, they didn't, they didn't know if their businesses would be there. 
exact reason to get a coach, isn't it? Exactly. hundred <laughs> percent, you know, but again, with hindsight and stepping back and working with my mentor this year, it's like you're taking not big business because we weren't like multi-million pound business, but you're taking big business ideas into really, really micro, you know, one man band businesses. Um, and just not speaking the same language, really not speaking the same language. And I was getting really frustrated. Um, and it's how I kind of make my decisions and how I sit and think about things. I'm like, I, I compile all the money, all my share sale money into this dream business over here and end up with nothing. And it wasn't a gamble that I was willing to take. So you still had some money left after that 150k yeah. loss. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad about that because uh, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise this may be even a different conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, living under the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm still surprised you could. I mean, did you convert anyone uh, from those 80 leads a week? Not over the phone. I had two two florists sign up um, towards the end, and we got we got them going. But the money it would have taken to have generated leads from that website is is bigger than me. No, it's just I spoke to people in the industry and at the beginning, and they were like, "If I were you, I wouldn't do it. It's going to be a money pit." Don't waste your money. There's the the marketplace hasn't got, you know, room for it. Do you mean and, and I wouldn't be able to get customers to that to your yeah, website because yeah. the because your competition was so big. Because the cost, yeah, yeah, and people can walk into Aldi, yeah, and people can walk into Aldi or little Tesco's and buy flowers. You know, they buy flowers for special occasions and not. Day to day, the day to day flowers come in from the, you know, the like the the lower end, and I didn't want to do lower end. Um, do I regret doing that? No, I don't regret doing it at all, because I probably did more in that seven months than people do in seven years in building their business. In what way? From someone with no experience of running or building an e-commerce website, by working with, again, strategic people that helped me for free, um, I learned all about lean marketplaces and membership models and how to position yourself as the go-to person um it reinforced my tenacity and resilience part of my personality um and it was and it was a difficult blow to decide not to do it because april and may i sat here in my office with with i'm not the md of that business and flowers aren't next, then I have no idea what, what this looks like now. 
I have so, no idea where, where I'm going. You talked about it being this sort of big blow. It was what did that kind of feel like? Was it a bit of a a blow to your kind of, I suppose, self confidence or self worth or No, strangely enough it wasn't. And I didn't I never looked at it as a fa a failure. Um and I wasn't worried about what other people thought because ultimately they're not paying my bills and they're not living my dreams. So it it was the loss. It was yeah, it 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 felt like another loss, you know, whilst walking away and leaving my other business was was part of my plan and it was all done. It's still a big part of your life, 19 years to suddenly you don't go there anymore and you don't live there anymore. And whilst dealing with that kind of grief of that lifetime then became the grief and the loss of a childhood dream. There was always going to be next for me. I, I, if you talk to anybody that knew me, you know, 20, 15 years ago, what would Joe do after she's left here? They would say it's flowers. It's interesting that you connected it to the childhood because obviously I was going to kind of follow that up because, mm. you know, you didn't, you, you mentioned it earlier being a sign of strong driver and passion for you. Well, what was it? about that childhood dream that made you want to push ahead, you know, put 150k in into that venture. Was it the fact that it was always something you thought of as a child and you wanted to see it through? Yeah, but the dream was the florist shop. And I thought I can rent, I can lease a shop I can lease a shop, I can fill it with staff and flowers for about £150,000 if I do it, like I visualise it. Or I can not have what my mum and dad had, which was the tie of someone's got to go in and open that shop. Somebody's got to be there at the weekend. So if I earmark that money and try to do it a different way, then it's still flowers. Um, let's try and do it a different way. And with hindsight, could it have been just the floristry coaching? Potentially. It didn't need to be the midlife crisis website over here. Um, but that's just where it took me. Now, going back to my bigger business mind of, okay, well, let's just build the strategy of the ecosystem of the business. And I built basically the business that I'd left as a startup and invested money like I was in that business and not in a startup. Lesson learned. And I suppose what gave you the, I suppose, confidence or belief that you thought that you could, you know, as you mentioned, take on and find a market share in a market crowded by mostly supermarkets right and big companies with huge budgets yeah you know in a way if i'm honest i didn't think about it it just made sense to me that that could be a way to feed the membership because the membership was the focus 
and the supporting the florists and helping them do what I believe I could have shown them to do. And so it's essentially a byproduct, right? It was a it was yeah. a leads mechanism. Yeah. But obviously, in order for your coaching business to succeed, you needed that business to succeed as well. Yeah, yeah, because the two needed each other. Yeah, yeah. I should have stopped at the coaching part and gone build that up, then potentially look at a way to feed feed the membership. I think it was too complex, a business model. The obvious answer has to be yes, but I think... I also don't think that I would have done it any other way because I, I thoroughly enjoyed the process and in a way it it helped not be a distraction because I was very, very clear that I didn't just want to be distracted and then have, you know, potentially the grief of one thing bite me further down the line. But in a way, it was a good distraction. But the people that I met through, through doing that venture have completely changed my trajectory of my life and my career now. You've used the word grief quite a few times. Mm. Why? I'm just interested in that use of words. Why um, are you kind of equating, I suppose, you leaving that company and obviously of your own accord mm. to a kind of bereavement? Because of how much I felt invested in it, it was my life. I gave everything to it willingly and very consciously. But it's a big gap to fill because it was my career, it was my work, it was my social life, the people that I met, you know, travelled around the world with other manufacturers and suppliers and customers and it was a busy job and it and it filled a massive part of you know my life in that way and that's that's the only only words that feels right you know not little not massive just it just feels the right word to say you know it wasn't like it happened to me then the word of grief would mean a very different thing. But it's still the right word. You mentioned about um, earlier um, about trying to, I suppose, save people. And you mentioned as well about the business kind of getting you through that difficult kind of um, 12 months personally. Do you think that also fed into the fact that it, it felt like a, a bereavement and a grief because you're essentially leaving something that had also got you through that difficult personal time? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, it was it was bigger than a job. It was my baby. It was my... It was a, a Joe-run company with massively supportive people um 
but my aim was always to get it to use kind of the human analogy was always to get it on its feet and that it didn't need me you know then then I'd done done my job but it had very turbulent terrible twos and teenage years and no and ended up being a very successful business standing on its own two feet with its own position and it 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 was what it was and it taught me a lot um and I'll be forever grateful for it yeah and coming away from that given the impact that we've just discussed what influence did that have on your maybe decision making or your approach to this other business did it cloud it in any way because you've talked about it being you know as we've just said about the grief and obviously when I think about people making decisions when they're grieving they're not necessarily always going to be the best decisions because their mind is distracted so was there any impact of of that in terms of the decisions you may have made on your floristry business yeah yeah hundred percent yeah hundred percent it was um like i said it was it was a distraction but not in a unintentional or not thought through way um and like i said i just really enjoyed the the interaction with new people, learning new things, building something for me, um, and all the way through the feedback being really positive, and you know, keep and it just and it just fueled me to keep going. But there, there just had to come a time when it was, is it shit or bust, or is it make the sensible decision? What would I be telling somebody else? if they were me and it would be cut it now no take the good from it put the money in the director's loan set set up a new business and and work your ass off to get the money back do you think that you are trying to create a floristry version of the your other business in a way yes but i think i was trying to prove a point to me more that I could do it on my own why did you feel you had that point to prove because I wanted to run a business on my own I didn't want it's great having the support people there but there's a drive in me again whether that's right back to childhood whether that's examples I've seen of my parents but there's a driver in me to build a business that is mine. That there isn't any outside. No, because I had outside influences and outside. I had to take other people's um, views and values and ways they wanted to do it into account. And I, I guess there is a thing about Am I a one-trick pony or can I do it again? And can I use all what I've learned to do something that's just mine? Because the easy thing would be just to go and get another job. 
go and work for somebody else in the in the industry. But that's that's not an option. Who are you really really trying to prove it to? Because you you just mentioned about um, yeah having having that point to prove to your to yourself, mm. but it sounded like you know there was maybe some some doubts of other people you just you just used the word one trick pony is that something that people said to you or was that just a perception that you had no yeah that's my internal dialogue you know that's that's not other people that's because i've done these things and i know the bits of it that i've done on my own but I want to do the whole thing on my own. So what? I don't know who... It's not proving to my dad. It's not proving to my friends. It's not proving to anybody else. So it can only be me. Mm. Sounds... Uh, that internal dialogue sounds... tiring, maybe, to, to have mm -hmm. to deal with that. If that, that little voice in your shoulder saying, this isn't good enough, try kind of try harder. Is that... Is that is that, is that what it sounds like? No, that's not the voice. I don't... Yeah, that's not the voice. I, it's more of a... It's more of an encouraging voice of, well, you know, you can do it. Don't doubt yourself. Um, I climbed Kilimanjaro the year before I was 50, having never climbed before, never done any kind of long walk before. Because I was asked to do it and I thought, what a way to mark. Because marking 40 was painful. Let's make marking 50 positive. Yeah. And that changed my internal narrative. Um, because if I can do that, then I can do anything I set my mind to. No, absolutely. That's an amazing achievement. So obviously this business closing down is still a fairly recent thing. Have you had time to kind of process it and process the, I suppose, the impacts on on how you're feeling about it and maybe what you might do next? Yes. So what I did, as I said, April and May were, I don't know what to do now. Um, my mentor suggested, um, a coaching, um, qualification whilst I've coached and mentored people through my career, haven't got any official, um, qualification, but the thought process of it was if I can be coached for free three times a week whilst earning my coaching qualification because you have to do a lot of practice coaching and peer coaching then I might just work out what it is in a quick period of time rather than um, doing it a different way and that's exactly what's happened that's exactly what's happened so now my business is Everything's being finalised now. The website's being done, and it's and it's sales, performance coaching, because I can teach people what I, teach people what I did. 
and what lessons are you going to take from the floristry business into your new venture? Don't spend money like it's carried out of fashion. <laughs> the good one. <laughs> Think about it as a startup. Um, and when you say that, what do you what do you mean? Just have the basics, you know. Have a have a landing page so people can see what you do. Um, have branding sorted so you can stand out from a positioning point of view, and then do what I do best, which is talking to people, getting in front of people, making cold calls, speaking to people that I know from 19 years of working in an industry where there are salespeople um, and build it up slowly. Don't try to replicate the job that I had, which is driving around the world, being, you know, away from home three days a week and build and build a business for the life ahead and not I guess, make the mistakes of the forestry industry in the replication. No, and I, I'm not going to replicate from the spend point of view, but I could easily replicate from the behaviour point of view. And I don't I don't want that, that life anymore. I did it for 19 years. I don't want it anymore. I'm happy to go in the car. Being away from home three days a week, getting up at four in the morning, driving to meetings, getting home at 10 o'clock, not looking after myself, not sleeping, no, in my own bed. Home is the dumping ground and not a, and not a home. Um, if I go out and do workshops and trainings and things like that for people, then they'll be very considered and there won't be four in four days. There'll be spread out so that there's there's recovery time and there's time to be at home and there's time to you know do the hours coaching with people and support people in different ways and and make it a hybrid because I want the hybrid I don't want to build an online business and you mentioned use the word mistake just a minute ago Mm -hmm. and you've talked a lot about decisions you may have made in hindsight what other decisions or did you want to, could you have made differently? What mistakes did you make that you now look back on as mistakes and you would have, you know, approached them differently now? See, the main mistake of the 19 year career was not putting myself first and in the picture. It was very much for everybody else, very into surviving mode and um, saving mode which are parts of my personality Um, I think I'm more open to listening to other people now than I was I'm a lot more open to feedback and taking positive criticism because I don't know the answers I don't know I don't know how this could look um, and one of the things that the coaching diploma is teaching me is to be curious. Exactly as we said right at, right at the beginning, you know, when we spoke, it's that it's that curiosity, that interest that makes makes it so much more interesting. You no, know, and that 
the coaching isn't about me. It's about the person that I'm with. And if I can help them in any way not to have to go through any of the pain, in inverted commas, then they can, they can willingly have have what they have what they need mm. yeah. and and focusing on the floristry business what mistakes did you feel that you made there that you wouldn't uh, you know or that you would change in hindsight i should have listened to those people that i spoke to right at the beginning that have been in the floristry industry for a long time that went do not do it do not spend the money that is not room why do you think you ignored them I don't know. Don't know the answer to that. Why didn't I ignore them? Because I was just being so bullish that that there was no way it wasn't going to work. It was such a fantastic idea. Was it that you were going to potentially let get let down the child in you and that childhood dream? Not consciously, but now you've said it, yeah, potentially, yeah, potentially. Yeah, it could have been a bigger inner child piece about that, yeah. Because obviously ignoring them means that you, you're trying to, you would fulfill the, the childhood dream. Yeah, which I got a taste of. And as I said... I wouldn't make the same mistake, but I don't regret doing it. As crazy as that sounds. <laughs> and what did you learn about yourself through that that period and and coming out the other side? Um, I never thought of myself really as an ideas person, um, but a proof that I am. Um, I learned that I can be strategic from a standing start without any kind of model to base on. Um, and I learned that the, the people really want to help, you know, ultimately people are good and we all want to help each other. And I think by being open and making the decision to close it, and then really taking the time of, okay, what is it I actually want to do now? You know, and it's been, what, six months since I started the course. And now I feel ready to kind of go, okay, this is, this is what, this is what I'm good at. This is how I want to spend my time. This is the value that I can bring to people. So don't learn not to rush it, not knee-jerk reaction just jump into something else because other people expect you to and it sounds like you didn't really have any kind of fear of not succeeding with that business but fear of failure is often something that does hold people back from starting businesses what advice would you mm -hmm. give to those people that it's never too late that it's never too late to go for for what you want and there may be time constraints, there may be financial constraints, there may be caring for other people. But if you really want to do it enough, then then you'll find a way. And that doesn't mean to say that you will do it in five minutes. It might take 
five years, but the compound effect of doing a little bit of it every day and filling that part of you that has the desire to do something different, jaw. If you do little steps, 15 minutes, half an hour every day, then in 12 months, you'll be so much further ahead and you'll be so proud of yourself when you look back. Mm. Just made me think, you said the compound effect, obviously there is there is that book, but I, I've also read a, another book recently, which is amazing, so I will recommend it. It's called The Slight Edge and he talks about that 1% improvement that, as you mentioned, the small baby steps over time compounded give you give you that edge and yeah it's a fantastic book so i'll put that in the show notes what advice would you give to listeners who have experienced a setback in in their business recently i mean you've you've overcome a lot of kind of business um challenges and setbacks and recessions as you mentioned yeah how what advice would you give to them be kind to yourself don't berate yourself over it even if it is something that you walked into with your eyes open um sit and take stock think about no i'm a i'm a big fan of like future self work you know put yourself a year in advance what does it look like where are you what are you doing and how do you build the steps backwards but also don't rush no and don't don't be embarrassed if you have to take a job or part-time job or do something in the meantime that helps you step towards the thing that you want to do because it's not a step back it's part of the strategy if you need the money or you need the social element of it or whatever heart it needs to feed for you then see it as part of the journey to get you there and not oh i've had to go back and get a job yes i'm getting a job because this is my dream and this is going to help me get there quicker you use the words be kind to yourself is that some advice that you would have wanted to give to yourself when you were md and yeah yeah, and it's one that I'm very, very clear on now. Yeah, because I'm, as I said, I'm coming up to the age where my dad had his strokes. I don't want to follow suit, so I need to put me in the frame. And I, I've got, what, 10 years left worth of, you know, valuable work time longer I work for myself and continue to do coaching and, you know, that's unageable, but kind of see it. I've got 10 years of hard, you know, graft to do, to build, to build the thing that I want to build. And have you still got that points of proof? Not as much because I've, <laughs> I've done a lot in 15 months. So a lot of the things where they could potentially have been that doubt it's it's not there yeah so so are you no longer berating yourself and saying that you're a one-trick pony yeah yeah no longer yeah yeah so you have learned to be kinder to yourself as well yes yeah yeah 
it's been a journey to get there, but, but yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in a much better place now. I finished the year. The idea was to finish the year with a business model and a business that I can take forward into next year knowing exactly what I want to do, exactly who the ideal client is, exactly what I'm offering, and that's exactly where I'll finish up. And what changed with your, I suppose, your your mindset and maybe your mental health there a little bit? You, you know, you said that you are a lot kinder to yourself now. What what has kind of changed on that front? Um, I think I've recognised the bits that I need now that it's not all about my old business. You know, what 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 bits of me actually need feeding and I can be extrovert and I like to be around people, but I can also be very introverted and like time on my own. And it's about finding that balance and surrounding myself so for examples it's like times when I know I don't want to work so like Friday afternoons I don't work because I want to go to yoga because I always wanted to do yoga and never had the time to go so Friday afternoon that's that's what I do but three or four days during the month I go networking I put myself in a room with lots of people that I don't know and it feels that part of me um make sure that I see my friends that I didn't see before because there wasn't time and make sure that there is that me time so that home can be home. And that's really important. It sounds like you've just generally been more considered and I suppose maybe a bit more self-aware about what you need and as you say, what fuels you and, yeah. and what gives you energy, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How does it look? What kind of people do I want to be around? Um, and the people that I've met over the course of this year have been amazing. Yeah, yeah really, really looking forward to like, grasping this and seeing where I am this time next year. Mm. Yeah. Well, absolutely, and good luck with that. So I suppose final question... And it's the one we always end on. I think you've kind of already answered it, but I'll, um, I'm just going to, you know, recap, I suppose. If you if you could go back in time and erase the flourishy business um, from not actually happening or, or, you know, that business closure not happening, would you do that? No. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't not want the lessons, the people, the... The experience, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take it out the the story. Okay, so we always end on a quick fire round. So, and this is kind of um, short answers and and short questions. So, um, you ready to go? Yeah. Okay. So, failure is learning. What is your life's mission? To make a difference. What's one piece of advice that you would want to give others on your deathbed? Laugh every day. Good one. Is it laughing yoga you do or? I don't know. No. It was rather than be laughing or make sure that you dance every day. Could be either. Nice. 
what's one habit that keeps you resilient? A habit? No, I don't know the answer to that. What a habit? Ugh. Yeah, habit of sitting at your desk and being focused, I guess. If you could be immortal, would you take it? No. Why is that? Because the people that I love and care for wouldn't be here. And I'd be alone from the people that have known me forever. What's one surprising fact that not many people know about you? I was on the front page of the Sunday Mirror when I was born. Okay, you've got to elaborate now. <laughs> so the midwife that delivered um, me, she they were doing an article on the hospital and on her because she delivered so many thousand babies. And my mum was the last one in before they were going to do the thing. And they went, don't worry, Mrs. Stimson, it won't be you, but we just need to tell you blah, 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 blah. And that was my, duh, 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 duh. I was the first baby born. And there's a picture of me hanging upside down by my feet, um, by the doctor with my mum on the front page of the Sunday Mirror and a big inside spread. And I've got all the press um, photos that they took. still got it. Yeah. Amazing. Who can you recommend um, as a guest that you think I should have on this podcast? Uh, Helen Tudor. Why Helen? Because she's my mentor for the year. And I think her story would resonate with your audience. Perfect. Thank you for that. So, Joe, where can people find you and connect with you? So, Johan Stimson on uh, LinkedIn um, and same on Facebook. Um, they can email me at joe at go to joe limited. That's the name of my company, go to joe. Um, they can email me. Yeah. Well, great business name. And that's it. And so thank you so much for your time, Joe, and, and sharing your your story and and all of the, the ups and downs. Really appreciate it. So thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Amazing. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Fail. Really hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Please do subscribe to the show and leave us a review. It really does help us to grow and to reach more people. Do follow us on social media too. We're at Jeswood on Instagram and at Beyond the Fail on YouTube and also on Linktree. Thanks again and see you soon.